0: Questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas.
1: For many of you, your journey began with reading Velikovsky's Worlds in Collision. His theory of multiple worldwide cataclysmic events occurring at regular intervals is a catalyst for further research, as he was able to back up all his findings. I continue to conduct these interviews to challenge your thinking. Are you of the school of thought that canyons and gorges were originally quarries that were mined out by the same civilization that built the pyramid-like structures? We receive a lot of messages from engineers, architects, and designers who are history and antiquitech enthusiasts. These age-old enigmas we members of a global species now find ourselves trying to remember. I think many of us right now are somewhat quote-unquote in the now, intuitively, and it doesn't look real promising, with parasitic fallen ones desperately deceiving humanity. Wonder opens the mind, and that's a beautiful thing. Even if your history was erased because of some power, don't give up, because it flows through your veins. Either Tartaria was an empire, and there has been a conspiracy to conceal it, or thousands of mapmakers and historians in the Middle Ages conspired to make it up. Clearly, the latter is completely ridiculous. Wikipedia's argument is that it was just a term used to denote unknown and unconquered land, which is equally absurd. So why are they hiding this? Long story short, unraveling the alternative history, and with the help of Newton and Fomenko, we see a new chronology where we're actually only in the year 1300 AD or so. And for the skeptics laughing at this, the irony is that Fomenko was an atheist mathematics and history professor basing his chronology on science, whereas the chronology that the majority uses is based on the works of an ignorant and religious zealot, Scaliger, who conflated the Middle Ages with fake histories and dates used from made-up sources. So now even the atheist is in a conundrum. If you look at Rome and Turkey, you can see that a massive cataclysm like the Apocalypse is what caused all of the melted buildings and complete annihilation of stone architecture. This is something that barbarians couldn't have achieved. If we actually look at the architecture from the so-called quote-unquote dark ages, we actually see a society of highly advanced antiquitech. This society ended with a massive cataclysm known as the mud flood, which by means of soil liquefaction sunk the majority of the buildings of the world dozens of feet into the ground. The survivors used the world fairs of the 1800s to control the narrative and create an excuse To get rid of the architecture and technology by means of dynamite and destruction are we living in the post-millennial reign
2: you are listening to veritas if this is your first time listening welcome home to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material join the veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com don't forget to visit the veritas store for Focus life force energy Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hasselrich.
1: And I've been telling you, Michelle that she should write a book with a lot of her findings and she has finally done so two books actually the titles are Physical Evidence for the Planetary Grid System and the Suppressed Moorish Worldwide Civilization and Transportation and Other Infrastructure of the Planetary Grid System you can buy them both at buythisbooktoday.com our website is piercingtheveilofillusion.com And from somewhere in Arizona, just like I am, I'd like to welcome one of our favorite de facto historical detectives, Michelle Gibson. Hello, Michelle, and welcome back. How are you?
2: I'm doing great, Mel. Thank you very much, and thanks for the invitation.
1: Always, always a pleasure, and I honestly, I feel like a kid in a candy store every time I have you here because there's always something new that you discuss, and I follow your blog every time I go there. It's just, Michelle, you're just... You are always, always, always getting ahead of everybody else. So first question I want to ask you before you tell me all the new things that you have come in contact with. Do you think if you had received an advanced degree in history, you would be open to receiving this information in the manner you have laid it out in your books, in your your research?
2: No, absolutely not. (laughs) And I tell people that because I loved history when I was... Growing up, it was one of my favorite subjects in high school, junior high and high school. And um, I just so, um, sopped it up, I guess you could say. And the good thing about it is it gave me a pretty good grounding in what the narrative tells us, which actually does help with this. And um, you're not going to find the history of what I believe the civilization was like and who was responsible for it anywhere in writing it's just if it's you can find it it's hard to find because it's just been totally suppressed but it was a very advanced beautiful civilization and you can find it when you read between the lines you can find it when the narrative talks about infrastructure you can find it when you look at maps or google earth and you see the same s shapes of rivers all over you can find it when you start looking at the layout of where the international airports are of major cities, for example, and you'll find at some angle, a a track of some kind or a stadium racetrack, you know, automobile racing or horse racing. Um, and you see that configuration all over the earth. And then you find out that these places are being demolished along with others as well. Um, so when you start seeing the patterns, which is something that I'm good at it's pattern recognition. Um, you know, I, I just kind of have this filing cabinet in my brain of all these places I've been looking at since 2018. And I may not recall it off the top of my head, but I can, I can say to myself, okay, I know where to go find this and I'll go look it up and, and just kind of bring it forward. And I've been studying this subject of the earth's grid system since, Intensively since June of 2018, which is when I started blogging and making videos, Um, but I actually became originally aware of the even the idea of the physical layout of the Earth's grid system back in 2010, which when I watched a video by a teacher by the name of John Volo McKelzadek, and he did a lot of work to bring back knowledge of sacred geometry and the whole idea that there was a physical grid. And at the time, I'm, I was thinking, okay, well, that sounds great, but who did it? And that was back in 2010. So it just really feels like my path has been specifically about the, the physical layout of the Earth's grid system, which my original research of started in 2016 when I found what's called a star tetrahedron when I connected uh, major cities in North America. with The, the tetra- star tetrahedron is, is like the Star of David. And it's also called the Merkaba, but, which is the human light body. But the top part of the uh, tetrahedron is in Edmonton, and the bottom part is in Merida, Mexico. And by that time, I knew enough about the ancients and their precision from you know, seeing work that other people had done with places that were in alignment that I, I knew what to do, which was basically extend the lines out. And then I wrote all these places down, and then I looked at each of these places. And when I did that, in the process of doing that, um, over a period of time, the existence of the original civilization and how everything looked the same all over the earth and what happened to it with the colonizers and, you know, going straight for the star forts and, you know, all this other stuff, um, I saw that big picture, um, which has took me deep into timeline research. And I'm going to talk a lot about that today. And then I followed up on comments that viewers left me, and that took me places that I wouldn't otherwise be looking, like the the data points that I found on the grids that I found. Um, And then things that I found in my research that caught me as strange, like people I was finding in the National Statuary Hall in Washington, D.C. And I'm thinking, what is that person doing in there? (laughs) And, And so that was another line of inquiry. Um, so it's been an exciting journey, Mel, and it's in many ways, it's hard to be at this level of awareness, but what I'm finding is that people are a lot more people are starting to question the narrative and realize something's wrong. And when you even start looking around where you live and you start questioning when they say things were built and that kind of thing, the narrative really does fall apart. Because there's a big disconnect between when we're told something was built along with what we were told we were capable of at the time, which would have been, for the most part, low technology. And you have examples like the Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C. as having been built during the Depression. When, there was, when there was
1: no money. By the way, let me just interject <laughs> for one second. But the, one of the things that I always find interesting when you're, you come along is that I have an addiction. I have to confess to people. My addiction is about our hidden history. This is my addiction. It's a, I can't stop. When you say something, for example, you mentioned to me something before we began the interview today about a, a a place very close to where I am. It's it's called the A Mountain. A, a because of the University of Arizona has its logo on this mountain that I've driven by thousands of times. And I've never realized what you said. You said, look at it again. It's a pyramid. So if you go to Google Images, folks, just put A Mountain, Arizona, or Tucson, and you'll see it right there. It just looks like the Bosnian Pyramid. And now you said something interesting, too, that I think you may have said before. But you mentioned the horse tracks or duck tracks. I remember in Miami, right next to the airport, there's a Flagler Greyhound Park. In Tucson, right next to the airport, there's the Greyhound track as well. And in Phoenix, they just closed it down. 1.4 miles away, three minutes from the airport, there was the, the Greyhound Park as well. Why do you think they have these horse tracks or duck tracks right next to international airports?
2: Well, I, I think they're, they were a part of the original grid system. And so people that investigate ancient temple sites, which has been going on for a long time, and they see the resemblance to a circuit board um, with the ancient temples, let's say Mexico, South America, wherever, but other places as well, not just there. Turkey. Well, this is like a circuit. What most people don't realize is all of the infrastructure on the earth is part of a circuit board or circuitry. And I've done some research on that. Other people are doing research on that. Um it's it was a free energy generating technology. It was a precise scientific and musical instrument. And they've turned it into a power and control system and an energy harvesting system. So unbeknownst to ourselves, our energy is being harvested. And I think tracks like that, um, greyhound racing and thoroughbred racing, um, I think they're harnessing the, not only the energies of the race and the circuit and whatever's going on with the circuit, but also the human energy because you have betting going on there. You have high emotions, intensities um, and The significant point, Mel, is that that same configuration is everywhere. (laughs) It's everywhere.
1: Is there a connection between this and, And let's say, uh, what do you call that? uh, Merry-go-rounds. Merry-go-rounds around the world, but especially one, I'm told, the one in Disneyland that is positioned in a very specific area. And instead of going one way, I'm I'm not sure. I think they go clockwise. This one goes counterclockwise. What are the others? Have you heard about that?
2: there's something with carousels.
1: Carousels, I have not
2: delved into that too much, but I can tell you that um, along with everything else, I don't think they were built when we were told and that there was a function of merry-go-rounds with the original civilization. Um, I found one in New York state for the next research that I'm doing uh, in the Hudson river Valley. There's a merry-go-round at bear Valley or bear, bear mountain state historical park or a state park it, and there's a lot of really interesting stuff that's coming out in the process of doing the research because i'm focusing on star ports and historical amusement parks and trolley parks and it's yielding quite a bit of information but to get back to your question there's some kind of connection with what carousels are actually doing and and the whole system And and I think Earth was like a grand central station for the universe and that there is some role that Earth played in keeping the universe in harmony and balance um, that got disrupted with whatever took place here. And um, we talked a little bit earlier. Um, I'm just going to share that in the course of my research, I have come across to me, very solid evidence that our perception of time, space, and place has been tampered with most definitely. And so if we're not on a spinning ball, um, everything is spinning around earth. And I'm very comfortable with that idea. It's not what, my, what drives my research. What drives my research is this original civilization, who it was, how it was hidden from us, who hit it, um, what their actual agenda is. And, you know, there's so much we're seeing play out now, which is actually helpful to somebody that's looking into hidden history <laughs> because it's becoming real. You know, it's kind of moving into the somewhere out there into what's going on. Um, but, you know, I'll just share a little bit here. I think this is a good place, Mel, for me to talk about what I would call the construction of an, of an occulted timeline. Because I believe everything we know of was inserted or grafted onto the infrastructure of the original civilization, and we've just been given a story to explain its existence. And a very flimsy story at that. You know, So I encourage people, just go out into your own communities and look at the older buildings in communi- your communities and ask yourself the question, does that story even make sense? Um, of when this courthouse was built or this museum or this, you know, beautiful mansion or whatever, the examples are endless. Um, so Mel, I'm going to go ahead and share the occulted timeline that I've identified because it gets into what I'm going to talk about with the, the tampering of our perception of space and time. Sure. Okay, cool. So... I guess it was around 2019. I started doing my my own original research in June of 2018 when I started blogging, and then I made bl- videos from my blog posts. and I was drawn to consider the years of 1492 and 1942 as boundary years for a new timeline that was somehow inserted over the Earth's original original history. There are four hundred fifty years between 1492 and 1942. And at 225 years, the midpoint year is 1717. There are nine 50-year periods between 1492 and 1942, and a lot of significant historical events happened in our narrative in the 40-41-42 and 90-91-92 years between 1492 and 1942. And just to go back in time a little bit, this first part on papal bulls is a little bit before 1492, but again, I think they're constructing the timeline to lay the foundation for their takeover of everything. So the Unum Sanctum Papal Bull was issued in 1302 by the Pope, proclaiming all human creatures needed to be subjects of the Roman Pontiff for salvation. And then after that, in 1452, the Dum Diversus Papal Bull papal um, granted Portugal full and free right to subjugate unbelievers and, re- and reduce them to perpetual slavery the 1455 Romanus Pontifex papal bull confirmed Portugal's dominion over all lands discovered or conquered during the age of discovery and permission for their enslavement and then 1493 Inter the bull the Pope gave Castile authorization for the land grab of the new world so those bulls laid the foundation for what became known as the doctrine of discovery and the doctrine of discovery was used as legal justification for taking the lands of North America, for example, and a Supreme court ruling in 1823, um, the Supreme court ruled that the native people didn't own their land because of those papal (laughs) bulls and all the things that were laid out that the Lewis and Clark expedition, for example, met the criteria of. Um, So, their lands were taken away from them, and it goes deeper than that, but just to kind of give you an idea. So I'm saying 1492 is one end of this new timeline, and I don't know if you knew, Mel, or not, but 1492 was the year that the grammar of the Castilian language was published, and it was the first grammar of a modern European language to be published, and that took place in 1492.
1: I did hear about that, and I was told, being told that People in other parts of Spain, as you know, in Catalonia, for example, they speak Catalonian. In Galicia, they speak Galician. Uh, in other parts, they speak something else. In the Basque country, they speak speak Euskadi. So this Spanish language came from where then? Right. This Castilian and language. And the
2: first, European, the first Europe, modern European language. So I'm kind of thinking the Tower of Babel was a lot more recently than what we believe. That These these new languages were being constructed as part of the um, New World Order. And there were other things going on around that time, and I'm going to go into that.
1: Same with German, I'm, uh, I'm told.
2: German? Other languages as well. English, um, there was something from a, starting around that time called the Great Vowel Shift. The Great Vowel Shift um, was like the mid-1400s to the mid-1500s. And that covers the time frame when the King James Bible was written. That covers the time frame where a lot of Shakespeare was written. And um, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of rabbit holes down there. And I'm going to say especially Shakespeare, because I don't really want to touch the King James Bible. <laughs> I've got a lot of biblical scholars in my own family. <laughs> and, and, and that one is is. You know, it's right in there, right in there during that time frame. So, um, and you've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, and the New Testament's in Greek. Um, but there's there's a lot of stuff going on where whoever did this was yes. encoding a lot of what they did in this stuff, and they were creating the new language and the new vocabulary and and all of that. Um, I'm just thinking about Cervantes right now. I haven't really looked at it, but I don't know if, um, Don Quixote and, and all of that genre, um, also had a part in, you know, bringing in the new language. Just a thought.
1: Interesting. El Manco de Lepanto. That's the, is because he was, he, he was missing an arm from a war at one point. But anyway, I sometimes wonder if these characters like Shakespeare and Cervantes are, fictional characters in a way
2: I think it's a good question to be asking and um I I like what your your thing says about you would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned is that it
1: yep that's my main motto in life
2: (laughs) you know um there's a lot of things to ask questions about and we're going to go into some more of that here um So that was going on at the beginning of this uh, timeline that I've identified between 1492 and 1942. Um, So in the 1500s, there was a very bizarre meeting between King Henry VIII of England and King Francis I of France in France called the field of cloth and gold or the field of cloth of gold. That was in 1520. And if you read it in Wikipedia, it just sounds really bizarre. Um, and I'm, I'm just, what comes to my mind is they were laying out the splendor of the original civilization. This actually took place, um, kind of like the world's fairs. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) they're saying we did this, but no, this was originally done by the original civilization before it is all gone. And, and, the world's fairs, they say, were they were built as temporary buildings, and when they were done, they they were just dismantled. And if you see pictures of the world's fairs, they're just incredible buildings. <laughs> so, and
1: there's by the a way, speaking, of holes in this story, speaking of the world's fairs, even I had this conversation with Jay Weiner the other day, and some people say he, he this is his opinion, not mine, but he says, "Oh, folks, don't don't get too caught up on when it comes to the world's fairs because that was Blaster of Paris." I still don't buy that. I still don't buy that. Why would anybody get into these ornate plaster of Paris formations? Almost like you need a three D printer to do all these in two years. I mean, look at the the, uh, uh, the Sagrada Familia uh, the cathedral in Barcelona. Take that for example. Right. It's been it's been uh, in, under construction for hundreds of years, and they still haven't finished it yet. But we have these world fairs at a time when we had horse and buggy but we are building them in in just a matter of one or two years to be destroyed immediately after. It just doesn't make sense to me. Hawkins Razor tells me that it was what you said. They were built by some other civilization. We claim ownership and then we destroy them. So people can't question how can we not, you know, there's the question. What do you think happened with the, I don't mean to digress, but what do you think happened with the beauty and the craftsmanship of the old world?
2: Well, some of it's still with us. Um, most of it's been destroyed, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but like in Chicago, um, one of the buildings that was said to have been built for the world's fair is a big museum there. And if you look at it, it's just an incredible museum. Um, classical looking architecture, uh, Chicago, well, let me see. Like Penn station it bothers me when I can't think of something.
1: That's what okay, um, happened, like Penn Station. You see the original Penn Station gosh, and you think, how in the world did they do that? And they demolished it because it was not practical anymore?
2: It was only supposed to have been standing for 60 years.
1: Exactly. That's
2: what they tell us. Um, and then if you look up Chicago World's Fair Museum, um, you see... Exhibit Chicago 19, 1893 World's Fair, the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago is housed in one of the few buildings remaining from the 1893 World Columbian Exposition. And if you look at a picture of the Museum of Science and Industry, it's quite impressive quite impressive. So again it, it doesn't hold up to scrutiny. and but also we're, we're in these buildings every day. They're, they're colleges, they're high schools, they're elementary schools, they're museums. Um, you know, go to the old town of where you live and look around and, and just ask yourself the question <laughs> who built this? Does this make sense? And so that's one thing that uh, one of the ways that this has been hidden is, you know, they do it. They say, we did this. And I was talking about the, the field of cloth and gold, um, which you can look up. And um, this is, let me read it to you this is what they tell us. Um, June of 1520, King Henry VIII of England met Francis I of France near Calais for an astonishingly astonishingly grand European festival designed to improve relations between the two great rival nations. So magnificent was the occasion that it became known as the Field of Cloth and Gold. Now, this is kind of a lead-in to King Henry VIII um, being a major figure in the historical cover-up. Um, so, between 1536 and 1541, the dissolution of the monasteries took place, in which under King Henry VIII's direction, approximately 850 monasteries were uh, dismantled, <laughs> disbanded, as along with convents and friaries, and leaving none. Um, income and t- was taken, assets disposed of, and in many cases, like that of Glastonbury Abbey, the buildings on the property were left in ruins. And then around this time, and I found this really interesting, because to me it answers a question that I've been asked a lot. Um, And let me just read this. The College of Arms, the current location in the city of London, was established in 1555 and was in full employment during King Henry VIII's reign. It was delegated on behalf of the Crown to act on all matters related to heraldry, And in 1530, and this was just a few years before the dissolution of the monasteries, King Henry VIII conferred the duty of heraldic visitation on the college, which were tours of inspection between 1530 and 1688 around England, Wales, and Ireland to register and regulate the coats of arms of nobility, gentry, and boroughs, and to record pedigrees. Monasteries, the ones that were destroyed, were formerly the repositories of local genealogical records. And from then on, the College of Arms was responsible for the recording and maintenance of genealogical records. So I believe there was a cataclysmic event worldwide that resulted in a liquefaction event or flood of mud. And the evidence for this is around the world. Um, Thank goodness for the internet, because there's a lot of good pictures and a lot of good research being done on this. And And that the earth was repopulated by, like, um, there were a lot of orphans during the 19th century and um, infantoriums at world's fairs and other events where there were sideshow events with babies and incubators. Um, A lot of immigration taking place, repopulation. And a lot of people ask me the question, well, I've got this you know, long genealogy, how, how is that even possible? And I'm one of those people. I've got long genealogies on all sides of my family. And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) My husband came from an orphan. So he didn't have that. And a lot of people will, you know, leave comments or, you know, well, yeah, there's orphans in my family too. So you got the people with the, the long genealogical records in their families and you got the ones with no family history. And to me, this College of Arms provides an explanation for how come it is that some people have them and some people don't. And um, and the motto of the College of Arms is diligent and secret. Why? You know, why diligent and secret? Is it they don't want us to know <laughs> what they're doing, but they're doing it diligently? And, you know, so that to me is one explanation for why that might be the case.
1: Um and by the way, a lot of these children—if you look at pictures from New York—they were literally slaves. They were working the mines. They were working the factories at a very young age, too. What happened? The question I have is, what happened to the parents?
2: And again, that's that kind of gets into this whole thing of—if
1: they had parents at really
2: all, to, right? I mean, it's 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 different aspects of it. You know, were they raised in orphaned? You know, were they incubated? for example, and raised in orphanages and then sent out. I mean, there's the orphan trains. A lot of people have been talking about that, but they had this overabundance of children in not only North America, but Europe during the same time period. And it's in the literature, you know, it's in the great, it's in Charles Dickens, it's in Victor Hugo, all of these orphans. And um, so I think they had a very large population of youth. (laughs) we're talking about and they had this human um crisis on their hands because you know they were creating the alcohol that were getting people drunk you know they were bringing in the opium that were getting people high um all for a distinct purpose i mean they want to dumb down the population they want to lower our consciousness they want to get as controllable and so this is how they got it all in there they re rewrote his history basically. Um, they put it in books. Um, and that kind of gets into, you know, the whole mythos of the wild west. You know, this was a highly civilized continent. It wasn't what we were told. Um, you know, just go to tombstone and you see a Hollywood movie set. Yeah. Um, but that was reinforced by what were called dime Westerns in the, um, mid to late 1800s that targeted boys um, with these images of the Old West. It was um, Wild Bill's Wild West Show, or Wild Bill, Bill Hickok in his Wild West Show, and that was just reinforcing this whole cowboy and Indian mythos. And he was also a Freemason. And you start looking into this, and and you see a lot of Masons, basically. Um. So they're bringing in this narrative and one of the things that I wanted to talk about is I started looking into the National Statuary Hall at the US Congress because when I was doing that research on the old west I came somebody left a comment actually about Father Eusebio Oquino who's a Jesuit missionary who represents the state of Arizona so we're told that he was a missionary, geographer, explorer, cartographer, and astronomer, born in northern Italy, and spent the last 24 years of his life in modern-day Sonora in Mexico and southern Arizona in the United States. He was born in 1645 and died in 1711, in what at the time was the Viceroyalty of New Spain, and um, he started lead expeditions across northern Mexico, California, and Arizona, following ancient trade routes, establishing missions, and making maps of the region along the way. We are also told that Father Kino was important to the economic growth of the area, teaching the natives of the area to farm and raise cattle, sheep, and goats, and that his initial herd of twenty imported cattle grew to seventy thousand. So he's credited with bringing cattle to Arizona.
1: Well, one quick pause about Eusebio Kino. Because all these characters, again, come from Italy. Uh, we're told that Christopher Columbus came from Genoa, Italy. But I have also have research that says that, no, that he was actually a Sephardic Jew who was a Morano, who was hiding in Catalonia. And uh, this story that he was simply a fisherman was not true. He was a cartographer. He, was, he, he had all sorts of knowledge and was past ancient maps that allowed him to come to the, quote-unquote, new world and the day where he was supposed to leave spain was the day where all the jews had until midnight to convert or else you probably have heard that too
2: something like that i mean i just i know what we're told isn't what happened <laughs> and within that you you really have to either have the you know the the folk knowledge that that you have or some some other way of figuring out that, that the new world wasn't uninhabited. <laughs> you know, that there was a highly advanced civilization there that was very ancient. And so a lot of work has been going into obscuring that and covering up the fact that it, it wasn't just empty land for the taking. And that's where my research is leading me. And I also um, encountered a historical figure named mother joseph paraso in the national statuary hall when i was looking at vancouver washington and this person was credited with with building the house of providence in vancouver and also in seattle you know monumental architecture and and mother joseph looks like a man in nun's clothing i mean it's not even hidden (laughs) And the story is, you know, this was this was not a person that was trained in architecture. This was just somebody that was self-taught and building all this stuff. And you see that again. You see that everywhere, you know, magnificent architecture. And ah, uh, well, you know, this person wasn't trained but was a genius and did all of this stuff. Um, you know, that's pretty typical. Um, another one is, you know, the, the, they'll say this was the first courthouse, but it was demolished to make the new courthouse. You know, each b- building being ornate. By the way, um, I'm looking and finally, at finally. This is the courthouse today.
1: <laughs> I'm looking at pictures of Mother Joseph Pariso, and I, I'm trying to find to see if I find a picture, a photograph, where he or she looks like a woman. Can't find one. He looks like a a, a man.
2: Looks like a man. Yeah. And I, I see these two these two characters, Father Eusebio Quino in Arizona for um, the Statuary Hall, and Mother Joseph and washington state and i'm thinking what are these two doing in here <laughs> and so I've, I've done some research on that and i've done five um parts of the series and I've, I've got 12 all together to do so i've got a ways to go and doing that series is time intensive um because each per there's um i'm getting about four states for the most part and that's eight people and that's at least two days of research for each one. So it takes me a while to get through that, but it's been what I call the gift that keeps on giving because I'm finding a lot of hidden history in there, (laughs) you know, a lot more rabbit holes. And we'll talk about some of that in the second part of this interview, but um, it's almost like a a who's who of the new world's order and the people that they want to um, hold up uh, for recognition and, you know you see people like Helen Keller representing Alabama, and you wonder, well, why is Helen Keller that? But if you look into her story, she was a socialist. she was a radical socialist, and there's a lot of socialists in there, <laughs> and a lot of lawyers turned politicians, turned other things statesmen or whatever, founding fathers um you have and they carry that people. Marxist
1: ideology with
2: them right. Why? Why in the U.S. statuary, in the, in the statuary hall of the U.S. Congress are these people being held up? The one I'm working on right now, the state of Michigan, there's a historical figure named Louis Cass. He's one of the two. The other is Gerald Ford. So I haven't started on Gerald Ford yet. What's interesting about Louis Cass, his former governor, former, uh, almost you know, ran for president three times and lost, he was the guy behind the Indian Removal Act. Of 1830. He was Andrew Jackson's main guy. So when they signed the treaties and got the okay from the tribes to get themselves removed, not knowing what they were giving up or what was really going on, Lewis Cass was the guy from Michigan they brought in to spearhead the Trail of Tears and the removal of all of these, you know, native people.
1: And he also supported slavery. States.
2: Right. He did. And Um, he's one of the two for Michigan. He was also behind a lot of the treaties of the Great Lakes um, indigenous people that got them moved somewhere else. So he was getting land for Michigan and for Ohio and, you know, other states in that area. So again, he's also in the statuary hall. So we're not talking, you know, the creme de la creme or the salt of the earth here. You know, we're talking about people that Supported this this agenda.
1: And by the way, I'm not, I'm not an advocate for removing statues like we've been doing in the past few years. But why is not his statue not removed?
2: You know, and again, if you look at who's wanting the statues removed, it's it's kind of on once. You know, it's, it's both sides are problematic. You know this 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 is everywhere, and I'm I'm not going to state it openly, but. The whole system, the political system, it's not just one side or the other. It's just more on one side than the other. So the ones that are are pushing for things, in the name of social justice and all that other stuff, there's this this whole agenda has been clothed in positive sounding verbiage, you know, human supportive sounding verbiage, um, but the uh, things behind it are not benevolent. And so the ones that are pushing for all of this stuff are, are using it to cause division when we've all been lied to. We've all been lied to about our history, and instead it's, it's become about you know skin color and one side doing things to the other side and, and gotten all convoluted because the people who are really behind it, the money behind it, and the power behind it, don't want to be seen. And, oh, by the way, they really can't touch us. So they had to get into our heads in order to be able to program us, if you will, to do the dirty work to ourselves, to each other.
1: But you remember how few years ago they were kneeling, kneeling for many causes, right? But at the same time, I'm looking now at the statue of Louis Cass, and I see Nancy Pelosi and a bunch of them around the statue, almost like they're praying. You know, it says... Washington D.C., December seventh. Reporters and staff members stand around sculptures of Lewis Cass to listen to House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi during a news conference in Statu- Statuary Hall at the U.S. Capitol uh, to, to sign a tax bill. But almost, they're almost like praying. With all that history, you would think they wouldn't do that.
2: And who's ever heard of Lewis Cass? I hadn't until I started doing the research for my blog post that yeah. I haven't published yet because I still have seven people to do. I don't. I've never heard of him, Um, but like I said, he was a major player in the removal of the original Americans from their lands, their traditional lands, and you know, sending them across to Oklahoma Territory, Texas. Um, Yeah, those were the main places that they went to. They wanted to get people that were not from that area to displace the ones that were from there. So it's not unlike what they're, you know, yeah, all the stuff that we're seeing today. It's the same idea, um, bringing in people with no attachment, no history. And, you know, to get back to how could they have done all of this, that was part of it. Is They just didn't have any history that they knew about to relate to. Um,
1: do you see, you know, i I've got Michelle, so much
2: stuff swimming around in my head.
1: <laughs> do you see more Moorish yeah. architecture in the East and more Russian— if you look at San Francisco, the, the architecture— and all that part of the world similar to St. Petersburg, Russia. And at one point, that part of the world was probably Russian. I mean, look all the way up to, you know, the Western Canada and Alaska. Do you think that the Russians were in this part of the world? Well, the, the ancient Russians, that is.
2: So, so this is that actually is an introduction to um, kind of a main point here. All of my understandings and intuitions and things that I know from my research and things from my, that I know from people who are Moors um, is that this the original civilization was, was Moorish, which refers to Lemuria, also known as Mu, and so Moor is actually M-U-apostrophe-U-R, and the Moors are still with us, the Washita Moors, um, which were the Aboriginal inhabitants of North America that had an an empress. They still have an empress. They're still here. They're called the ancient ones. Um, But this civilization is known as Tartaria because Russia was Tartaria, as was Tibet, China, Korea, Japan. Mongolia. That part of the world, Mongolia. Um, Northern Africa was Barbaria. North America was the Ouachita Empire, huh. um, just throwing things out, the Ottoman Empire. Um, you mean
1: Barbaria, like the Berbers? The,
2: right. It was, it was Barbaria. It was um, it was an empire. All these were empires within the overall Moorish Empire. But I think the awareness of this whole thing started coming out strongly first from Russia and Russian researchers. And so it's become known as Tartaria. But Tartaria was actually part of the Moorish civilization, and they were all the same civilization. They weren't at odds with each other. They weren't fighting each other. It was actually completely and totally integrated. And if you go to my website, piercingtheveilofillusion.com, or you go to my YouTube channel, Michelle Gibson, and type in Moors, and I come right up, I will show you the evidence that everything is the same. And um, it's just best known as Tartaria. So again, they've they've actually they they give you an explanation for everything, for every bridge, for every building, for every library. They say, we did this, this person did this this year, this construction company, you know, this style, neoclassical or Richardsonian Romanesque, or Moorish Revival, or Egyptian Revival, or um Beaux-Arts or Art Deco. This was built in 1890, or this was built in 1920, or this was built in 1930, but it was built by us, but it's Moorish architecture.
1: With what tools, and with what equipment, with what exactly. money? It,
2: it just, all they've done is put a plaque up <laughs> or a cornerstone engraved on it and said, you know, this important person was here on this day and we dedicated this building and either they engraved it a year or painted a year above the door or somewhere on the building. To claim it, but the story doesn't match. And that's why I tell people, just go to the older buildings in your community and just start asking questions because the story that they've told us to explain how something came into being does not match the story they told us about how low tech we were at certain points of time.
1: Do you think, Michelle? They have yeah. forged document. If I go, say, I'm, I'm I'm picking a California right now. If I go to San Francisco and I go to the assessors' office that charges the property taxes, I should be able to find public record of when that building was built. Do have you ever tried that? And have you found anything?
2: I have looked at San Francisco for your example. There's incredible architecture in San Francisco. Um, kind of makes me cry with what's going on right now Mm -hmm. (laughs) with all the um the things to bring this down i mean it's all it's all still either lower the vibration lower the collective vibration or destroy the original civilization um and i have not specifically looked at those records i have looked at what's on the internet about given buildings so I've I've gone to the first layer. I haven't gone to the second layer of actually utilizing the type of resource that you're talking about.
1: If these cities were founded at a certain point in the mid-1850s, 1840s, as we've been told, mm-hmm. then they should have records. They should have records that are available to anybody. And I've mentioned this before, and you probably know this too. There's that panoramic photograph of San Francisco from the late 1800s. And you see so many, so many things there. You even see t- two churches that almost look Russian, almost look like what you see in St. Petersburg. So if that was built only in a matter of 40 years by miners, I just don't buy it.
2: Yeah. It, the story really does fall apart when you start looking at what's there and also what's been destroyed. And you had great fires, earthquakes, floods, floods many different places all over the earth. And um, a lot of those fires have really suspicious origins (laughs) and, you know, they were more than likely to destroy the original infrastructure and then come back and say, well, we built it stronger this time. So to kind of give a cover for the buildings that are still there, masonry buildings and whatnot. And, it, again, thank goodness for the internet. Um, the internet remembers everything. So, if you're interested in doing research on this, there's really plenty of evidence if you just type in your search terms, whether, you know, Great Fire, San Francisco, or any place really.
1: Yeah, be tons careful. Tons of them. Be careful where you search, though, because you have the cultural curators or the history curators, like Google. If you try to find something, it may tell you, oh, we found. 2 billion searches of this, but you only get about 10 or 20 and then there's nothing else. Almost that they're hiding our history that way. Plus they know that most people have a short attention span. So use other search engines or I've mentioned a few of them in the past that you can see that do not hide the truth, at least on for now.
2: Yeah. And, and again, thankfully the way that the internet is designed, you know, one thing will lead to something else. And so if you just keep searching, if you, you know, see something in your, what you're looking at that you want more information on, you just keep going and going and just, it all comes together because of how things are linked. (laughs) And, um, you know, it's actually a great time to be alive and, uh, a great time to be doing this kind of work because, you know, people really are ready and starting to see for themselves. Though I, I think probably most people like, like us, Most of the people in our immediate lives aren't into any of this stuff. So um, it does become more of an online community coming together. Um, I don't think there's anybody in my family that would have any idea what I was talking about.
1: Oh, getting lying. Same same with me. (laughs) I'm the crazy... Conspiracy theorist, I'm a, I am tell them, it's not a conspiracy theorist. Or a, I'm a prep parapolitical researcher, but might as well call me a dot connector. Basically, that's what I am. Right. And just want to mention something, I don't mean to deviate, but something that fascinates me. You probably know of the Czech Republic, uh, the astronomical clock there in Prague that's been since, there since 1410. It's this idea, if you look at that clock, a lot of people might not really understand it. But this clock tells you so much about the zodiac and the every single, what is it? The great year is twenty-five thousand nine hundred and twenty years. Every seventy-two years, that clock moves one degree. And obviously it hasn't been around for that long if you're looking at you know the, the big picture. But what if, what if, Michelle, something moves, our sun and the moon move to another part of our big circle. Every 2,160 years, we were in the age of Pisces. We're entering the age of Aquarius. And this is why, as Robert Felix, late Robert Felix, used to say, not by fire, but by ice. So, our area, I mean, look at Sedona, used to be underwater. Maybe it was under ice at one point. Our sun and moon move every so many years. And then we repeat the cycle. And this is why there's migration, there's reintroduction of people and new languages. And that's what causes the reset. Have you looked into this at all?
2: Um, I know that a lot of people have, and a lot of people believe there was more than one reset. I'm seeing a continuous civilization from an- ancient to modern with one gigantic reset. Um, not to say that there haven't been events, but what doesn't make sense to me with the idea of multiple resets is the civilization that I'm seeing is so harmonious and so integrated that I don't even see how it would be possible to achieve that if they were always having to rebuild. And I, you know, I talked about it being the grand earth, being the grand central station of the universe. And part of that is um, I've been, been following alignments I see the presence of historical organs that are no longer there and bell towers and, you know, they all line up perfectly. Um, uh, parks with merry-go-rounds, things like that. And there's and there's more. But um, I've, I've seen that kind of thing showing up in North America and I've seen it showing up in other places, the exact same things. Organs and, you know, massive organs and bell towers. And I believe that this civilization was harmonious and healing and all this was working together um, to not only maintain like a unity consciousness and stay healthy and well, but also to send those healing frequencies and vibrations out to the universe. And, you know, if you look at bell towers, they're so very tall. Um, And. I I just think that was for the purpose of you know, reaching higher up with these tones. Um, again, I, I can't prove it, but I can you know I can show where these things are lining up perfectly all over the earth. So that's why I I land on the side of a continuous civilization and one major reset with the possibility of s- smaller ones during that time.
1: Well, what about bells? Um, you said something interesting here because I've seen the pictures of the the grounds where they removed. All the bells in all the churches, and probably replacing with a different type of bell, with a different tone, but I've done some research about this, and I, f- I forgot exactly where this was. I think it was probably in Europe somewhere, but there was an archbishop, and there was a pandemic taking place in, th- in that specific town, and he asked for the bells of every church to be ringing for hours and hours. All of a sudden, the pandemic was gone because of a certain tone that those bells were emitting. Shortly after, somebody and a new research ordered all those bells to be removed and they're in the United States too.
2: Right. Right. And that's, that has taken place. And, you know, these were, this was a genius civilization and, you know, they had all the scientific and musical technologies at their disposal. Um, probably not to just to heal like you're talking about, but also to levitate huge stones and other things as well. And and Mm -hmm. that's all been lost. Um, I just want to mention a few more things uh, during this first part. Um, I was talking about the 1500s earlier and King Henry VIII and the dissolution of the monasteries and the College of Arms. I remember I said that um, I believe that 1492 and 1942 were the boundary years of this new timeline. And that I looked at um, the years 40, 40, 40, 41, 42 and 90, 91, 92 between those two years So, in 1540, 50 years after uh, 1492 and all that went on that year, um, the Jesuit order was formed. In 1541, Gerardus Mercator, who was a map maker, produced his first globe. And another thing about Mercator that's interesting is that on his maps, he showed ley lines on water but not on land. And you can see old maps where there are ley lines on land, and water. So the ley lines themselves started to disappear during this time. In 1542, the Pope established the Inquisition. In 1543, Copernicus published On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres in in, uh, May May of 1543. What that book did was establish the supremacy of the heliocentric model over the geocentric model of ptolemy which had been the dominant model up until that time Copernicus published that book oh it must be right he was dead by the end of that month and that's that's what the historical narrative says it was published in sometime in the middle of may and he was dead by the end of may this book the on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres so that's One thing, (laughs) actually two things, Mercator's Globe in 1541 and Copernicus's book on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres in 1543. To me, those are two pieces of evidence that they're starting to change how we view things. Then um, in 1582, Pope Gregory introduced the Gregorian calendar, which gave us a linear time as opposed to cyclical time like the Mayan calendar, the Egyptian calendar. And then in 1583, um, Joseph Scaliger's chronology on the amendment of time was introduced, and he was called the father of chronology, where he's trying to kind of match all of these <laughs> chronologies throughout history. Um, it was actually, for people who have heard of John Dee, it was actually between 1582 and 1589 that he and Thomas Kelly started to Uh, possibly bring in lower vibrational interdimensional beings through their scrying activities. Um, It was in 1623 that Shakespeare's first folio was published. Uh, 1665, 1666 with the great plague of London, 1666 great fire of London, paradise lost by John Milton was published in 1667. And I kind of see that as um, like the original predictive programming. Um, there's just a lot of interesting stuff, and there was a, a tremendous amount happening in the year 1717, which was the midpoint year that I was talking about. Um, you know, I've done an extensive amount of research, but it was in 1714 that the German House of Hanover and the Georgian kings ascended to the British throne through legitimate issue from the royal bloodline of Elizabeth of Bohemia, who was of the House of Stuart. Um, so they brought in their own. Stuart descendant and they prevented the actual Stuart claimant James Francis Edward Stuart from claiming the throne and in 1717 he was exiled to Rome um let's see the premier grand lodge of england was founded in london on june 24th of 1717 um the masonic annaluchus calendar was adopted that year by the premier grand lodge of england um seventh 17- 1717, 17, 17, so July 17th of 1717, Handel's water music premiered for King George I on a barge on the Thames. And then exactly 200 years later, on July 17th of 1917, um, the British royal family changed their name from the House of Saxe Coburg and Gotha to the House of Windsor. So that was actually 200 years later. And, and that's significant because um, the current royal house um, descended from an obscure ducal line out of Saxe-Coburg and Altenburg in Germany, Duke Francis. And he was a progenitor of the uh, of, of all of the houses of Europe that replaced the original houses of Europe. And I've done a lot of research about that. So that was in – so. Vera Amschel Rothschild was born in 1744. Adam Weishaupt was born in 1748. Du Francis was born in 1750. And that was after an event called um, the Great Frost of Ireland, which took place between 1740 and 1741, which was 21 months of extremely cold weather in Ireland um, that killed hundreds of thousands of people with no known explanation. And I've, I'm kind of of a mind that there was a rip of, in the fabric of space-time that was caused and allowed these beings to incarnate. And if I'm right, I mean, it w- they did come in shortly thereafter, and they are they are kind of responsible for uh, the world that we have today. Uh, because you had the founder of the House of Rothschild International Banking Family. You had Adam Weishaupt, who is the founder of the Bavarian Order of the Illuminati. And you had um, Duke Francis, who was the founding father of the all of the houses of British of of Europe through primarily through Victoria and Albert, but also through marriage to other um, royal families in Europe.
1: But look at the calendar too. You mentioned the calendar. I think that the I don't know the imposters, the new cultural editors. What's the name? What's the name that you like to use for the people that are crafting or the architectures of our new History. What do you call them? Um,
2: I think the word controllers comes to mind, but they go by names like globalists and elite and... Okay, um, controllers. 13 families.
1: (laughs) At one point, we had a calendar, and a lot of people are not familiar with it, but it was uh, devised in 1848 or 9, where our calendar was actually 13 months. And we look at astronomy and astrology on this program a lot, and I've always wondered, why is it that Ophiuchus, which is the 13th, zodiac sign is always hidden from us. And if you look at every single month, we have a zodiac sign for January, February, and so on. So it used to be 28 days, 364 days, makes it so simple. is very similar to the menstrual cycle of women, very similar to the lunar cycle. And they did at the end of the 28th day and in December, the 29th day would not count, but that would be kind of, they call it year day. And they would start immediately after another year. Think about it and the balance that that could bring to everything. Right now we have 30 days, 31 days, 29 days, and so on. What do you think happened?
2: Well, when I started talking about the timeline, I called it occulted. And that's basically what they've done. They've occulted everything in our existence um, with rituals, spells, numerology, um, you know, hiddenness, knowledge that you're talking about of astronomy, of, um, natural cycles of time. And they've, they put it into the context of something they can control. So, um, there are certain dates, ritual dates, like 322, which is also the number for skull and bones of Yale. Um, 9 is another one, um, certain dates that things tend to happen on. Uh, so they brought this in to try to bind us, and actually, the word grammar is related to the French word grimoire, or a book of spells. Um, and in English language, we get the word spelling. You know, and that's not by accident. And honestly, I wish I was wrong <laughs> about all that stuff. Um, and when I first started learning about it, and I don't know if you've interviewed Peter Moon or not. I have Never talked to Peter. Yes. Um, I learned a lot about that from his books, um, about the occulting. It was kind of where his, when I was reading his work, um, many years ago before I started doing my own, he was one of the few people that actually talked about the moors. Um, but he was also had an interesting journey because he was a member of L. Ron Hubbard's sea org. um, Before it was hijacked, as he would call it, um, because initially it was teaching people how to navigate in their consciousness. Um, And then it kind of got turned into Scientology and all the mind control stuff there. But originally it, it had a much higher purpose than what it became. And so Peter's work is more like stream of consciousness. So I learned a lot from him, but it's hard for me to Figure out where I learned about it in the books that he wrote, um, but that was when I first started learning about the high the high occult elements in the world that we live in. And then over the years of doing my own research, I've just I've just seen things and learned things that just kind of reinforce that that idea that that's exactly what's taking place. Um, and I think in the second half of our interview, we're going to talk a little bit about how. Things that are going on actually opposed an existential threat to all of us.
1: Let's do that. Let's take the break now. But let me just a couple of things. As you mentioned Scientology, I'm so glad you did because I have a quick story to tell. A few weeks ago, I was in New York, and my family and I were watching a play on in, 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 in Broadway, and we were walking out, and we see this huge building, the Scientology or the Church of Scientology building. And they had this beautiful, beautiful, and I'm not an advocate for Scientology at all, but a beautiful, uh, what do you call it, storefront with the books and videos and this and that and speakers with nice music. And I told my wife my story that I read uh, Dianetics many, many years ago, and they have been following me forever. Every country I moved to, I don't know why or how, but they have an intelligence apparatus that follows me everywhere, sending me you know, reminders and little letters to go back. I only went once because I didn't know what it was. When I found out that it was almost a cult, I ran. But after we're leaving that area, probably a couple of blocks away from that area where we were, both our cell phones rang at the same time, and it was a, a call center from the Church of Scientology. How in the world? We were standing in front of of their Scientology building. And for some reason they tapped into our phones, both of us. And at the same time, the phones rang and it was somebody from the Scientology uh, operation. Cause obviously if we were standing there for say more than 30 seconds. They thought, Oh, these people might be interested. Let's give them a call right now. Don't you find that interesting?
2: Yeah, it, it really is. And, um, in some of Peter's books, um, his, again, his story is interesting because both of his parents were killed in a car accident when he was just coming of age, which is about the time that he got involved with Sea Org. Um, but he was giving it as an example. He wasn't painting L. Ron Hubbard as a saint by any means. But he was showing how, again, the the, the occult operates in our in our culture, and he talked about Al- Alistair Crowley a lot. He talked about um, Jack Parsons um, and this whole occulting ceremony that took place in the high desert somewhere in the 40s the usher in the age of Lucifer or something like that. And uh, I got the impression from what I was reading in the book that Elrond Hubbard was there when that happened. Um, but he was also talking about how the factions in the United States government would take over certain organizations, businesses, and so on and so forth. And that that was one of them. That, that the Sea Org organization was getting, getting too close to teaching people how to become free. And then, you know, all hell broke loose. And, um, you know, again, when I, when I was first learning about this, it, it really kind of scared me. <laughs> But something else that Peter said in one of his books was they had knocked us off our original timeline and again this was before I started doing my own research this was several years before I was just looking for information about the Moors and this is one of the places that I found.
1: Well let's continue this in part two so we can break both segments
2: Okay, sounds good
1: And by the way, obviously this is what L. Ron Hubbard said, he said quote, you don't get rich writing science fiction, if you want to get rich you start a religion, end quote And Michelle, just one last thing. You have come across some health information that we'll discuss during Part 2 because, as you know, Part 1 eventually makes it to YouTube and social media, and and you know what happens if we include that, right? So, folks, I'm not trying to be a tease. I'm trying to protect this platform. This could be life-saving information in Part 2. So tell us once again, how can people learn more about your work, your books, which I'm so glad you finally wrote and have out there for sale. Tell us how to get in touch with all that.
2: So my website is piercingtheveilofillusion.com. Um, YouTube channel is Michelle Gibson. And if you type in Morse, M-O-O-R-S, I pop up right away. Um, the link for the, the book is, buy this book today. Um, but you can go to, that's the, uh, hang on just a second, the N7P Publishing on online. The Noble Seven Book Club, and I have two ebooks for sale there. Um, so.
1: Isn't it buythisbooktoday.com
2: Yeah, it's buythisbooktoday.com and that'll take you right there. Excellent. And I'm under published authors ebooks.
1: Wonderful. Well, one more hour to come with, I call her, historical detective Michelle Gibson. This is Mel Hustlerick and you are listening to Veritas. Oh.
0: Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Subscribe today. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share the video. Click on the notification button to be alerted when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas, because you don't want to believe, you want to know.